Um, I'm grateful to uh, to be able to do this, to be able to share. And, and uh, you know, I mentioned that I was feeling a little under the weather, and and this afternoon my energy seemed really low. And even driving out here, I was like, oh God. Uh, and now I just feel great, and it's really being with you guys and just um, getting to share and practice together. It's amazing. Uh, you know, speaking of energy, you know how energy. Uh, we can kind of think of it as somehow um, linear or having some uh, limited. Uh, there's a limited amount of energy, and I'm running out of energy, so I've got to now go to sleep, or I've got to, you know, get some coffee or something. And, but we really see how energy is so directly related to our mental state. I mean, depression, what, even the word depression, you know, implies this lowering of energy. And it is such a low energetic state. And then when we're in a low energetic state, it's so easy for the mood then to go down. And then when the mood is down, the energy goes and it becomes this cycle. Um, which is not at all what I was going to talk about tonight. So, um, <laughs> I actually, um, and someone just asked me what's the difference between uh, this class, which each month we talk some about about the steps, and then the eight-week class, which is really which is supposed to be Buddhism and the twelve steps. And the main difference in terms of the content is that on the in the monthly class, I'm not really trying to uh, do a meticulous job of taking apart each step which is what I try to do in the eight-week class, really kind of do what my first book did, like really explore the, all the dimensions of, of uh, each step through a Buddhist lens. Um, in the monthly class, I like to just pull out some element that I associate with that step, whether it's specifically in the language of the step or whether it's... Um, I have cough drops. Do you want a cough drop? <laughs> And um, that was a good catch. <laughs> and sometimes I just pick out something that's just sort of vaguely related. But I was thinking about step one today, and, and I have to admit that whenever I've addressed step one in terms of the language, I've focused on the word powerless. So I thought, and, and I also was reading recently, a friend of mine is writing a book that's a workbook, a Buddhist 12-step workbook. I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I'll be sure and tell you. But I noticed, because she sent me a draft of it, that she addressed unmanageability. And I was like, oh, wow, I never did that. So I thought I'd talk about unmanageability tonight. And so what I would say, if there's going to be a title for this talk, it would be unmanageability and right effort. So how do those go together? So this, the full step says, as you know, we admitted we were powerless over, fill in the blank, that our lives had become unmanageable. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's alcohol. In Al-Anon, it's alcoholics, I believe. Uh, in NA, it's uh, we were powerless over our addiction, which is interesting. It's not we're powerless over drugs. It's powerless over our, our addiction. And there's food and gambling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
but that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable, which implies that, first of all, we were trying to manage our lives, which may have been our first mistake. <laughs> um, no, I mean, obviously we want to manage our lives in some kind of way. We want to have a life that is not completely out of control. And we can certainly say that our addiction makes it so that we can't manage sometimes even the simplest things like personal hygiene, um, not to mention jobs and relationships, or driving in a vehicle, you know. Many things that we lose control of, um, our finances, uh, our minds. And then the question comes up for me then, well then, how do we stay sober? Now, the 12 steps say we you know, find a higher power and we turn our will and our lives over to the uh, care of God. Um, but I'd like to think about um, what managing might involve and what effort we can take. So we, it's not that we, when we admit we're powerless, we just become passive. Say, okay, I'll just turn it over. Well, not much is going to happen. And the process of recovery is quite active. It's not that we're being passive. Uh, but this quality of not trying to control and yet make an effort, very tricky, very tricky. You know, if you, if you think that somehow there's some external power that just steps in and controls it for you, then great. You don't need to listen to this talk. You know? <laughs> uh, but if you think that you have to be involved in some way, that you have to participate in this process, uh, then, then, we have to, then it might be worth considering how that might work. Um, and it occurred to me that I had written something about this. And I'm grateful for that because with the cold and everything else this week, I really couldn't think clearly enough to make this up. Um, so in, in this, my second book, which is about higher power, um, one of the things I do is I go through the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's kind of steps to freedom. Uh, to recovery from being a human, and talk about them as powers, as higher powers. One of those, uh, one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, one of the steps in the Eightfold Path, <coughs> is right effort. And, well, I say it here, but I'll just say that it, this is a place where it's very subtle because when you say effort to somebody who's working the 12 steps, you're kind of 
there's some real question there if you're turning it over to higher power. So I, I, I'm going to just read this because it's, it's fairly short. It's just two pages. And I think it, it sums it up better than I can do on the spur of the moment. So uh, there's a little uh, uh, italicized paragraph at the beginning. Right effort activates the power of karma, merging the power of will with the power of letting go. It creates the possibility of change, and when combined with right intention, moves us towards freedom and happiness. Right effort is one power that seems connected to will, not to God. If effort is about me trying to do something, then where is a higher power in that? In one sutta, the Buddha describes the effort he made to come to awakening. He's asked how he crossed the flood, a metaphor for overcoming greed, hatred, and delusion, and arriving at the safety of nirvana. The Buddha says, by not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. Then he's asked how that worked. When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. Anyone who has sat down to meditate with a lot of determination and said, I'm going to watch my breath and I'm not going to be distracted at all, nothing's going to stop me, knows the futility of straining. The mind wanders, that's just what it does. The heart grasps at pleasure pushes away pain. That's what it does. If, on the other hand, you've taken the attitude, I'll just sit and let it all happen. You know the futility of halting, of doing nothing. The mind drifts. You fall asleep. Boredom sets in. Restlessness. In the same way, if we come to recovery with the attitude, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make myself stay sober. We often burn out and fall back into addiction. But if we think that we don't need to do anything, just let it all happen, there's probably not going to be enough energy to deal with the cravings when they arise. This shows the central paradox of effort in meditation and in recovery. If we try too hard, we simply wind up being swept away by the violence of our own effort. If we don't try hard enough, we sink under the weight of our own ego and craving mind. What's needed then is balance, what is sometimes called Effortless effort. This is where right effort connects with higher power. When we make a steady, non-straining effort, we come into harmony with effort itself, with the power of effort. We start to work with this force and begin to be carried. It doesn't work if we don't show up, if we halt, and it doesn't work if we try to control the process, if we strain. As with all the aspects of higher power, we have to work with effort, do our part, and let go. In the 12-step tradition, we emphasize showing up. In many ways, I see this as the key to recovery and spiritual growth, consistency. But showing up isn't just something we do with our bodies alone. We also have to show up with our awareness and our energy. Right effort isn't a prescription. You can't simply say, do this and don't do that, because each moment is unique and calls for its own effort. 
Jack Cornfield tells how as a new monk he complained to Ajahn Chah that his instructions were inconsistent, that he didn't give people the, answers, the same answers to questions. It is as though I see people walking down a road I know well, he told Jack. I look up and I see someone about to fall in a ditch on the right side of the road or get off on a sidetrack on the right, so I call to, out to him, go left, go left. Similarly, if I see someone about to go off on a sidetrack to the left or to, to the fall into the lech, left ditch, I call out, go right, go right. All of practice is simply developing a balance of mind, not clinging, unselfishness. Ditches appear in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places. The fundamentalist approach to religion is to say that there is only one answer. This provides people with a sense of safety in a frightening world. They don't have to figure out for themselves what's right and wrong or what to do in a particular situation. But, unfortunately, this approach overlooks the complexities of the world, of life. The mindful approach requires that we be attentive, mindful in each situation, and that we develop and use discriminating wisdom to address life's challenges. Over time, our mindfulness and wisdom grow, and we become more skilled at dealing with the difficult situations that we face. We come more into harmony with the power of right effort. So, that's something. And I know it bleeds into higher power, really sort of centers on that, but I don't think we can avoid that. That, you know, step one is foreshadowing Higher, the, the appearance of higher power. Uh, it's starting out by saying we're powerless. I want to talk about another image that I think is helpful in this process of dealing with unmanageability. I referred to it before. And this is um, in the mindfulness-based relapse prevention programs. Uh, they call this surfing the urge. And it's as though your craving or your addiction is a wave rising up out of the ocean. And surfing the urge means that we feel that energy. We feel the power of it beneath us. If we don't uh, stay on top of it, we get swept away, like the Buddha described. So it's kind of, it's, it's nice that it kind of connects with this idea of crossing over water. Um, you know, if we just let the wave crash over us, we're, we're drowned in our addiction. If you try to hold back the wave, not really going to work. Uh, and we get into this struggle with our craving or our I'm not going to give in, a white-knuckling kind of attitude. But this idea of surfing the urge is really about being mindful of the, of the sensation without succumbing to it. I like this idea of surfing, too, because when you're surfing, not that I've ever surfed, but I've watched it, and I can say this, that you are on top of a tremendous amount of energy, and you are riding that energy. You are, in fact, using that energy to carry you rather than being uh, overwhelmed by it. Of course, at some point, you may wipe out. Uh, but nonetheless, this idea of 
I, I think that's something uh, that we can connect with kind of viscerally. You don't have to have surfed to have a sense of what it might be like to work with that kind of energy so that when a craving comes that instead of saying, oh, I can't stand this, I need to distract myself, or I need to get away from it, or what can I, quick, let me call my sponsor, which isn't an unwise thing to do either, but, uh, you know, you're out of cell phone range, uh, <laughs> that you tap into that feeling. And uh, this, as we were talking about restlessness, this is one of the ways we can work with restlessness, that we just allow it to be there, and that we have a sense of just riding on it, not, not giving into it. And what happens, as with any wave, is that the wave has a life. That energy rises and then falls and, and subsides. And if we stay present with it, we will see that that's okay, that we can ride that out. And of course, just doing that once uh, protects us from that moment, but it also gives us, uh, it reinforces our own uh, sense of our own power, the pow the, our own higher power, our own wise power. Uh, and we can actually learn to be with these energies in this way, where we don't get swamped, where we're not straining and we're not halting, but we're kind of riding it. If the Buddha had known about surfing, I bet he would have used this image, really, because it, 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 he's almost there with this in this sutta, you know. It's like, I surfed across the, the great flood. Um, so it, this is, you know, this is very tricky for us. The, uh, the issue that this step is addressing is that tendency of the addict to try to control, you know, to try to uh, push away the unpleasant, to may hold on to the pleasant, to stay high. And, you know, as the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about, to really try to control all those around us, uh, and not just control our mind state, but to control our lives in many ways that are not practical, which is, of course, one of the reasons why the serenity prayer is so uh, useful and prevalent in 12-step world, you know, accepting the things we cannot change. And of course, it also says the courage to change the things we can. It's not about being passive, but it's about applying wisdom, the same wisdom that comes through mindfulness. So the, the RAIN exercise I talked about before, recognize, accept, tied in directly to the, the serenity prayer. That we have to first start by really looking at what's happening and accept the things that are uh, too powerful for us to change. Um, and one of the things that we're then dealing with, because this is kind of a... a uh, practice and recovery, but especially mindfulness meditation, is kind of a mirror for us. Is seeing that not only do we have to deal with those things that we want to control and let go there, but we also have to look at the urge itself, that desire to control, because that is another power that's running us, that's controlling us and to some extent. So, so we have to look in the mirror uh, and, and be able to let go of the object as well as the craving. This is um, 
And one of the ways that uh, Vipassana meditation is taught is suggested that you note whether you're, when you have a thought, whether it's a thought of desire or a thought of aversion, of not liking. And, you know, when I was first taught this practice, I thought, well, that, that'll be interesting to see if some of my thoughts are about desire or aversion. And then I started to note the thoughts. And then I found that virtually every thought I had was a thought of either desire or aversion. That this is essentially the purpose of thinking, is to either to get something or to get rid of something. And seeing that, you start to connect with that energy. Because besides noting that there's the thought, what we try to do is then reverse engineer the experience and go into, well, what does desire feel like? What does aversion feel like? And we start to see that energy in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, the agitation that comes with it, that sense of not enough or the sense of uh, repulsion. Feeling that, again, with this practice, we start with seeing it, but how do we get rid of that? Do you get rid of it by saying, oh, that's, I'm going to get uh, push that away? No, of course, we're again faced with that issue of right effort, not straining but not halting. The m- mindfulness uncovers for us the truth, but mindfulness also has a naturally healing quality. The, the, our, the quality of attention, one of the things that I think is surprising to people and maybe is not clear right away, is that just by paying attention to things, you change your experience of them. There can be this feeling like, oh, I'm just going to pay attention to desire, or I'm just going to pay attention to sleepiness or, or pain. Oh, how horrible, I just have to sit there with that, and it's just going to be there. But the, the attention itself actually has a healing quality, and, and has a quality of changing the experience. Uh, so we don't have to sort of get into this relationship of fear with, oh, I have to pay attention to this thing. Okay, it's just going to be horrible. But trust that this process actually is its like self-healing. Um, it's also true that um, when we start to watch, we start to tune into the quality of what we call impermanence or just continual change. And just as the wave rises and falls, we start to notice that the desire comes and goes. Of course, this is an essential understanding for people in recovery. It's something we know intuitively, if not uh, in our uh, you know, direct consciousness, that it's you know the desire to drink, the desire to use it'll pass. When when we're in our addiction, the feeling is that if I don't respond to this craving, that I'll die. I just, you know, I have to. It doesn't feel like, it feels like an imperative. There's no choice. When we have gone through sometimes of riding that wave, feeling that, and then seeing that, you know, you went to a meeting, you called your sponsor, you just went to bed, and the next day, it's like, oh, it's, it's not there anymore. We, we learn that we can 
just the, the time itself will, will resolve this. This is you know, one of the core teachings in Buddhism that everything is impermanent. Um, what's you know, ironic in a sense is that the, what tends to make the craving stay is acting on the craving or obsessing about the craving or focusing on the craving, like uh, in a, you know, getting into this conflict with it. That that actually kind of blows it up. Just feeling it without trying to manage it or fix it allows it to play out in, in a more, uh, just a briefer time. It just tends to come and go. And then, of course, as we, the less we feed the craving, then the power of karma is that the less we do something, the less power that habit has. And gradually it subsides, and many of us find that there isn't really any significant craving uh, at all anymore after some period of recovery. So this, you know, this approach, the the Buddhist approach, or the mindfulness approach is one of not trying to fix things. And it really does connect with the, the 12 steps in the sense that it's not about imposing your will on things. It's starting with acknowledgement. You know, step one, start by saying we admitted. You know, we acknowledged. We saw clearly the truth of our addiction. And that, that itself for many people, is the breakthrough. When we finally fully admit that there's, there's something that goes with that, which is, and it's, it's not stated really in the steps, but there's a seeing that this doesn't work. In the, you know, in, the, in some of the histories of AA, they talk, uh, talk about how the founders, and, and the Bill and Bob, that, that they would wait until the uh, their prospect was hung over or was at the end of a uh, binge and, and then go to visit them and that they were they were really ready then that 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 that, that um, you know they needed that uh, you know incomprehensible demoralization in order to have the uh, clear seeing to really admit and to also then have the strength of intention to really make the decision to change. Um, I, I mentioned in here, from what I, what I was reading, about how about right intention being essential with right effort, that um, until we... And, and actually what comes before right intention is right view. So right view is the seeing the addiction. That's the admitting, in a sense. Um, seeing it isn't enough, though. Many of us have seen that we had a problem, but not done anything about it. So then the second aspect of the Eightfold Path is we see how this suffering arises, and then we develop an intention to change. Once we have the intention, then we can start to make effort. And the, as I said, the, there has to be mindfulness combined with the effort, because if the effort is not mindful, it's a grasping or an aversive effort. 
So this is a whole sort of complex of tools. And the, the Eightfold Path kind of presents this set of tools which have to interact uh, in order that, for them to really be effective. To just be mindful without intention or without right view can be just to watch suffering moment by moment and to not do anything about it necessarily. Well, I will also say, though, that the mindfulness of suffering is often the inspiration for change. So this is one of the, one of the key aspects of this process as well. Well, that feels like enough on that from me. So I'd just like to see if there's any thoughts or comments on that, questions, uh, or whether it's just Betty Bye time. <laughs> yes. Hi, Leslie. Yes. You feel it. You feel that you're going to die if you don't act on the craving. Yes. Explain the part again where you're looking at it or whatever, and it, and it subsides, so you don't have to act on it or go crazy. Well, that's founded. So, so I'm just going to repeat sort of for the because it's being recorded that you're asking me to explain about how the craving subsides or how I how I view that process. Is that, is that basically what you're asking? So, I mean, this is founded in the understanding that everything that's born dies, including craving. Craving arises, craving is born, and it has to, it has to end. Um, what, what feeds the craving is acting on the craving. So the principle that I mentioned of karma is that when you do something, you condition yourself to do it again. And the more you do it, the stronger that conditioning becomes, just the essence of addiction. So the reverse is also true. The less you do it, the less the craving is, theoretically. It's not, it's not like a linear process. But we kind of diffuse the craving by not responding to it. So we have to separate the... Does the desire or the emotion, if you call craving an emotion, I don't know if you do, but uh, from the action, you know, we turn our will and our lives over. Okay, the the will, a craving is kind of a an aspect of will, right? And the action, you know, using is the act is your life, your will and your life. If you're caught up in addiction, you have the will to use and you're acting on it. So we form the will to not use, and then we don't act on it. Now, that doesn't mean the craving goes away. Um, I think I'm going around in a circle. But maybe I'll get back to the beginning and start again. Um, I guess there's, a, you know, it, it, I, I don't feel like I can explain it much more, except to say that it... It comes and goes. I understand the going away with the craving regarding the alcohol or drugs. Yeah, yeah. What about the craving of food? Yeah, good. Okay, that's that's helpful. Thank you. So what about the craving for, for alcohol and drugs can really pass, whereas food you have to eat every day. Um, and, 
and this is, um, you know, I think that, I don't know that everybody will see this, but I, I think of food and sex addiction as actually being related because they're both things that are natural energies that even if you're dealing with it as an addiction, they keep coming back. You can't, uh, you can't and especially with food, you can't just turn it off. So um, here I think there's a lot more of a, I guess, cognitive element I would say, which is, which is to say that we, with food, um, we can recognize that there's a craving for food and then there's a craving for destructive food. You know, you, you get hungry and that's not an addictive craving hunger, right? That's, a hum that's a, a, an organic need. The craving for the addictive food is something different from that. And those two have to be separated. And the, the, so, the, you know, I've worked with mindful eating, uh, uh, a whole program of mindful eating that, that's, that's been developed. And part of it is simply um, addressing diet, you know, which, of course, any, not, not diet in terms of, oh, you need to cut back but simply uh, what, you're, what you're eating. Most food addicts, there's certain foods that trigger their craving and that they're associated with the craving. And so, so uh, not letting yourself get too hungry. It's right there in halt. Um, you know, planning meals, preparing for situations when you're going to be away from home. I mean, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole program, right? I mean, obviously there's a couple of twelve-step programs, but there's also a mindfulness program involved in it. Um, they teach surfing the urge in that as well, um, really trying to be with the craving without acting on it um, and seeing if it can pass. And it and it 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 does tend to pass if you cannot act on it. Well, yeah, but, but nonetheless, you know, if, um, it's really important to see that, I mean, I, I don't think that from, that a craving stays at the same level continuously for 24 hours. I don't know. It tends to, if you pay attention to it, you know, really, you know, moment by moment, it's going to have ups and downs. And so there's those breathers. You know. And so, so there's that aspect of it, just recognizing, okay, I can get through this if it's going to last so many minutes or even a couple of hours. You know, I'm, and I, I feel like, you know, um, I have to acknowledge that I'm not a food addict, so I don't feel like I have uh, such a grip on, uh, you know, exactly how to do this. I really trust the the mindfulness process, and um, you know, I I think that um, you know, the, the, in terms of setting up 
diet and and being very conscious of that, being very careful with that. Uh, I mean, part of the thing that they teach in the mindfulness-based eating awareness training is is um, being aware when you're at the grocery store. You know, bringing mindfulness to there because that's when cravings can show up too, and making you know making decisions based on your you know your commitment, uh, so that then you're what you're taking <laughs> home. You know, you have is healthy. So it's a whole, it's a whole process. There's no doubt. It's not just, it's not just about the craving. Um, it's it's a whole. It's really a lifetime of work. Um, there, ha- a lot of people have had a lot of success with that, though. Um, obviously, I'm not, you know, qualified to teach this right here and right now. But uh, it might be something you look into. There's actually a book they have in the bookstore here called Mindful Eating. Uh, which I think is really excellent. Uh, so, okay. Yeah, you mentioned one more. Yeah, thank you. Effortless effort. Yes. And <laughs> you want me to say more about that? <laughs> well, I it's the it's the silent teaching, <laughs> effortless effort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, effortless ever. And then you talked about desire and aversion. Like those are the two things you're usually dealing with. Yeah. And I guess my question is, yeah, like that's what I felt was happening when I started the meditation, like in the beginning. Like I was dealing with trying to control a situation. Like there's always trying to control something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then make a decision to either let it go or continue to try to decide that you, you know what your attention is. Yeah, yeah. So. And so now there's like three questions, sort of. <laughs> I'll go back to effortless effort a little bit. To say that... Um, is actually the mind actually wants to go towards peace. You know, the, the surface mind is agitated and wants to go and running around and do all that stuff. But if we get beneath that, we find that there's actually a natural part of our mind that just wants to come into peace and a sense of oneness or unity and connectedness. And that it's kind of a matter of looking for that or connecting with that aspect of us that will do the work for you. And it is kind of like turning it over, you know. It's, I wouldn't say it's God out there, it's maybe Buddha nature if you want, but it's natural part of our mind that actually is moving towards that. And, it's, and of course we can't always connect with that, but it is there. And, and in practice, if we're... Um, consistent with practice, we'll eventually start to connect with that. And sometimes we'll be able to get there and sometimes we won't. But that, that is something that just sort of can happen organically. Is it, the thing about meditation is it's not something we're imposing from the outside, like, I'm going to bring meditation into my mind. Human mind goes to meditation. Humans didn't invent meditation. It's something that the mind is naturally capable of doing. We just have to create the conditions for it to happen. Um, 
And that's, I think that's the last question I'm going to answer because it's 9.29 and I like to, I want to end on time. If you want to talk some more, I'll, I'll be around afterwards. But um, let's just close with a moment of silence and, uh, no, not with a moment of silence. We'll close with <laughs> a dedication of merit. I thought I was at a meeting. No. <laughs> Just taking a breath and settling back again for a moment. I appreciate that people are here tonight and come here for themselves. The Buddhist practice is seen as a gift for all beings. Just as step 12 tells us that Our spiritual awakening is in the service of others. So too, when we come and practice meditation and share the Dharma together, we are awakening parts of ourselves that can help the world, that can help those in our lives, and can spread out and touch other beings. So in that spirit, we offer our efforts and our practice tonight to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering caused by addiction. May all beings be free. Thank you so much for coming tonight. And if you signed up on the mailing list, I'm trying to keep that pretty current, so I will try to get it uh, up for the next uh, month. So, if you will. <laughs>